Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I think for me, this is one of the most moving passages in all of the scripture. And I lived a long time without seeing the poignance of it. You will remember that the brothers have come back to uh, get grain in Egypt. And Joseph has had his divining cup put in the sack of Benjamin. And then he sends and they find it in Benjamin's sack. Begin with verse 14, and let's just look at the whole rest of that chapter. It's a long reading, but it's worth our attention. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. You remember the sheaves and the sun and the moon and the stars? It's now fulfilled. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my lord, let your servant speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, And if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. 
your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Would you pray with me for a moment again? Our father, we thank you for these stories. But it's not Joseph or Judah or Benjamin or Abraham or any of these that we need to see most clearly. It is yourself. Thank you for giving us these stories so that that might take place. So somehow through your word tonight, let us see beyond the means to the one who gave these passages to us. Let us bow at your feet tonight in adoration and praise, and we will give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been saying, Genesis is the seedbed for all of the scripture. It's where you get the earliest forms for a man's relationship or a woman's relationship to God. It is not a full picture. What you get is in many places just hints of what is to come. But those hints are good, and you see them fulfilled in the days that are ahead, later in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But what you do see in the book of Genesis is God at work in lives like yours and mine, God at work in human individual lives. You see it as we've said in Abraham, and you get that where he develops a personal relationship with God that the scripture calls friendship with God, and God puts him to the test. You will remember he brings him to the place where he finds out whether he will hold anything in his life back from God. And you'll remember the supreme test for him was Isaac, who was his only son, by Sarah. He was the one who was the pride and joy of his life, and he was the one who was the hope of all of Abraham's future. And God says, I want you to give him to me. And so somehow or other, God, through his infinite grace, got Abraham to take his hands off his son and sacrifice him. Now, later on, you and I learn in the Scripture about the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, you do not have any discussion of the Holy Spirit here, but you are not going to tell me that any man apart from the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart or any woman can come to the place where we'll take our hands off the dearest thing that we own and let God possess it. So, you see, what you have is an example and later you get the theology that explains how it takes place. At least that's the way I read these stories. You see, in Jacob, he was the crafty, cunning one. He was the master manipulator. You just remember the story. He manipulated all through his life until, you remember, he's returning back to his own country, and he knows that he's going to meet Esau. You know, how are you going to describe uh, that scene where he sends his servants 
out to find out and they come back and tell him Esau's coming with 400 armed men. Now, you remember Jacob is not a fighter. Jacob is not an outdoor man in the sense of a hunter or any of that. And here he is with all that he possesses at the mercy of a brother whom he sinned against seriously. And you remember how he plotted. He took, he took his camels, he took his possessions and broke them up into two groups and then sent them bit by bit ahead, hoping that he could wear down Esau. He said to his servants, now to each party that he sent, when he asked, who are you and what are these? Say, these are from your loving brother Jacob and these are a gift from his loving heart to you. And so he said to his servants, if possible, break him down so that when I meet him, he won't destroy us all. And then you remember he sent his family across. He sent Leah first. And then last of all, he sent Rachel. And he was left alone. Now, you're not going to tell me that that's not a pattern for every person's life. Because the hardest thing in the world for God to do is get you and me where he's got us alone. And we're dispossessed of everything. And we come to the end of our manipulation to protect our interests. He's left alone and there's no hope for him apart from God. And God comes and he wrestles with God and then God saves him. You know, as long as there's a chance that you can do it, you don't know what God can do. So he needs to get us to the place where we're over our heads. We're beyond our capacity. We cannot do it. And when we reach that point, then God has a chance. And so he strips us of those resources and of our manipulative skills and so forth. So you see, what God is doing in these lives is he's just spelling out an illustration. I'm convinced that God is the world's supreme third grade school teacher and he's the absolute master of object lessons and so he gives us these pictures so that we can grasp them. Now you come to Joseph and when you come to Joseph you get a man of incredible purity living in a pagan world, a world where his moral standards reflected in his life are not the standards of the people around him. He can live in a, a godless world and through the grace of God keep himself pure and clean, keep himself chaste. And then you get this incredible picture of him forgiving the very brothers who had sold him into slavery and wanted to destroy him. And so he forgives them. So you get a picture remarkably like Christ. But tucked into this story is the story of Judah. And we would not have that story of Judah if it were not for Joseph. But I want to talk for a few minutes about Judah because he is an illustration too. An illustration of a person who is turned from careless indifference to eternal things and self-interest, taking care of what he himself wants to where he comes to the place through the grace of God he cares more about somebody else than he does himself. And that's an amazing thing in any culture. It's an amazing thing at any period in human history, but here you get it. You remember how Judah is pictured for us in the beginning. You remember that uh, he's part of the hostility of his brothers toward Joseph. Now, he's a little reluctant to shed blood, so he said, let's just sell him to these Ishmaelites 
and then we'll be rid of him. But then he leaves his family, and he goes down and lives with the Canaanites, and he marries a Canaanite girl. Now, you know enough, I think, about Scripture to know that the Scriptures indicate that there is supposed to be a separation between us and the world around us, so there's a difference between us and the world around us. That is illustrated in this context by, you remember, Abraham, when Isaac needs a wife, he brings his servant in and says, don't let my son Isaac marry a Canaanite girl. So you go back to the land from which I came and get somebody from my relatives for a wife from my son Isaac. Now, why does he do this? Not because God doesn't care about the Canaanites, but because he does not want the faith of Abraham to get lost in a pagan world. And so he says, get somebody who has some sense of our culture, some sense of our heritage, some sense of our tradition, and she will not be a part of the world around to lead him. Because you know enough to know that when you marry, you marry a family and not just a person. Anybody want to object to that? I don't know about you, but I married a family. Now, in my case, it was incredibly good. I wouldn't be here tonight if it weren't for the family I married into. Because, you know, when I was 29 years of age, my father-in-law never had a day of college. Drove 850 miles and sat down across my kitchen table where I was pastoring four country churches and looked at me and said, you don't have enough education. I said, I've got seven more years than you've got. And he looked back at me and said, I know, but that's not enough. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you'll go to Princeton, I'll help you take care of Elsie and the baby. You know, I'd have never had the privilege of this weekend with you if it weren't for a man who never had a day of college. But he cared about his son-in-law. And so all the advantages of my life, so many of them come. When you marry, you marry more than an individual. But it can be deleterious, too. And the family can lead you away. And so you get the longest chapter in the book of Genesis the story of Abraham sending his servant to get a wife for Isaac. And then we, you remember that Isaac and Rebekah, they don't want Jacob to have a wife among the Canaanites. But now Judah comes, and that's exactly where Judah goes. He's heedless of his heritage. And so he marries a Canaanite girl, and that girl gives him three sons. And so we get the story of her, and then of Onan, and then we get... Uh, you remember uh, Ur dies, and then Onan will not fulfill his responsibilities, and so then Judah deals ingenuously with her and says, you just go back and live with your father for a while until my youngest son gets older. He's afraid to give him to her because uh, the other two sons have died. And so then you remember he gets himself involved in incest because, you see, Tamar was simply playing the role of a legitimate religious figure in the Canaanite world. And so Judah just simply accommodates himself to the patterns of the world of which he has chosen to be a part. But then something happens to him, and the story is not told. We simply know that he comes back to his family. And when he comes back, an interesting transition takes place. Reuben is the firstborn. Judah is the fourth son of Leah. But before the Joseph story is over, Judah is the leader of the brothers. 
And you will remember that he is the one, when they need to make the second trip to Egypt, he's the one that pleads with his father and says, we can't go back unless you let us take Benjamin. And the father says, I've already lost Joseph, and now you're going to take Benjamin away from me. And and Judah says, but we can't go unless you go. And then he says, I'll stand surety for him. I'll guarantee his safety. And I do not think he ever dreamed what it would mean. But when they get down, you remember that now we come to this passage. And Benjamin has gone with them. And they found Joseph's divining cup in Benjamin's sack. And he's back. And listen to Judah as he talks to Joseph. uh, As we read a few moments ago. It's interesting he begins to confess his sin. He says, what can we say? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. And you have a man that now is beginning to open up and confess the guilt that has been on his heart all these years, where he was part of selling his brother into slavery and part of deceiving his father. And now he's spilling it out and saying, our sin is uncovered, and he doesn't try to hide it, he confesses it. And he says, we are your slaves. And then he makes that incredible plea to Joseph to let Benjamin go. And what is the plea? He says, you let him go. Please, will you take me? I cannot see my father brought to his grave. I cannot see his gray hairs brought down to the grave. It's one of the most plaintive passages in the Scripture of a person pleading for somebody else's life at the expense of giving up his own freedom, giving up his own relationship to his home, giving up all that's familiar, just giving it all up so that somebody else can go free from the pain and suffering that would come from separation. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm convinced, you see, God is setting patterns here that later we get fulfilled in Scripture. Take, for instance, you find... uh, that what God shows us as he works in Judah's life here, you see that in Moses' life. You remember when Moses goes up on the mountain and he hears celebrating down, and he comes down and they've built the golden calf, Aaron himself contributing to that, and uh, the people are worshiping uh, an idol, and God says to Moses, Moses, just get out of the way and let me wipe them out. And Moses says, no, if you're going to wipe anybody out, start with me. Now, uh, that's an astounding thing. You see, very easy for a guy to say, oh, I'm going to be the second Abraham. I'll be the one who's the means of the redemption of the world. And Moses says, no. God, if you're going to wipe anybody out, you start with me. And you remember God is restrained. God is restrained when he finds one person who cares more about somebody else than he does himself. Now, you remember how that develops in Scripture. You come to the New Testament and you get Paul. Where are you going to find anything quite like the ninth chapter of Romans where Paul is speaking about Israel, the Jewish people, And he says, would that I could be accursed from God. 
I could be separated from God if my people could know Him. He's ready to give Himself, give God up in order that somebody else can know Him. He's more concerned about His people than He is Himself. And what you have, without any question, is the development of a picture that it finds its fulfillment in Christ. You remember that Deuteronomy tells us that Moses speaks and says, After me will come, we are told, God said, one like unto Moses, but greater. That is, without any question in my mind, one of the prophecies of the Old Testament of Jesus. Because he's like Moses in that Moses offered to sacrifice himself, but he's greater because he is the eternal Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Messianic King. And so, uh, when you come to Jesus. Now, where do you get, perhaps, the clearest picture of this in Jesus? It's in that 10th chapter of John. You will remember that Jesus is talking to them about the Good Shepherd. And he says, I'm the Good Shepherd. And he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. You know, one of the things that's a problem in these days is people listen to your tapes and they've heard all your good lines. But one of those lines that's, for me, too good not to repeat is this. Why do men keep sheep? Men always keep sheep to eat or to wear or to sell so somebody else can eat and wear them. And Jesus looks at these people in Jerusalem and says, I'm the good shepherd. I don't keep sheep to eat and to wear or to sell so somebody else can eat and wear them. I keep sheep so they can eat and wear me. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you and for the remission of your sins. You see, the, the picture that we get of Christ is one who gives himself so that some, he gives his life so that somebody else can live. Now what's taking place in all of these stories? Is it simply setting up a model that we ought to be like? Now, there was a time, and that's what I thought. I ought to find some way or other in the grace of God to be like a, a Judah here, or like a Moses, or like a, a Paul, or like a Christ, you know, be willing to sacrifice myself. But, you know, John says that in Jesus, you get not just a picture of Christ, but that what you have is a picture of of God himself. John in 1.18 says, it's the son who exegetes the father. He explains, he displays him. You remember he said in that night before the cross, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So then what's the picture that's being presented? It's not just simply a model person for us. What is being presented is an actual picture of the inner life of the character of God. Now, I wish I knew how to say this so nobody would miss what I'm saying. And if I knew how to say it right, I expect we'd all just get on our faces in adoration. Because what do you find in the inner heart of God? The early church fathers in the second, third, and fourth centuries, as they were developing the doctrine of the Trinity, said there is something unusual and unique in Jesus. That until you've come to Jesus, all the pictures that you have are from the outside of God. They had a Latin expression for it, ad extra. 
Everybody who speaks about God up until Jesus speaks from the outside. They speak about Him. But uh, when you come to Jesus, they used an expression, a Latin expression, ad intra. When you come to Jesus, Jesus speaks from the inside of the very nature of God. Because, you see, He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And so He tells us what God is like on the inside. Now, what is God like on the inside? In John's Gospel, Jesus explains it to us. He says, I have nothing in myself. The Father gives His life to me. And so the picture that you have is of a father who gives his life to his son. And the son draws his life out of the father. And then the son, in return, gives his life back to the father. And then the father spends it on a cross. And when you find the Holy Spirit, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? His business is to glorify the father and to glorify the son. He never speaks of himself. And what you have in the picture of the inner heart of God is an other-orientedness where the Father lives for the Son. The Son lives for the Father. The Spirit lives for the Father and the Son. They, they do not live for themselves. Now, the place where that became very poignant for me was in reading Plato. I don't know whether you've ever read any of Plato or not, but you know, he's the great Greek philosopher. And he, he did his teaching through what we call dialogue. One of these is called the Phaedo, and it's significant because it is the story of Socrates' last hour. Socrates has offended the leadership in Athens, and so they're going to kill him. You know, he's going to drink the hemlock. But before he drinks the hemlock, he's sitting with his buddies. And they're talking. And they begin to talk about the gods. And in that passage, as they talk about the gods, one of the things that they say is, the gods are perfect. And because they're perfect, they have no need. And because the gods are perfect, they cannot love. Isn't that interesting? That is the best of human thought, apart from revelation. God's perfect, so he doesn't need anything. And so, Socrates is very clear. He says that he was taught by a lady by the name of Diotima, who explained to him that God is perfect and has no need. And what is love? You love something because of what it can do for you. Now, we understand that. When I told Elsie I loved her, what I meant was I liked me. Because I found that when I was with her, I was happy. And I was happier than I was when I wasn't with her. And she made me happy. So I said, I love you. And what I meant was, I like to be happy. And you make me happy. If I can have you for a while, I'm happy. While I've got you... If I could have you all the time, what a wonderful thing that would be. And I call that love. That's the way the Greeks understood love. I loved her because of what she did for me. But do you know what you've got developing in the Old Testament, in, in these stories and into the New Testament? A totally different concept of love. 
It's not where you love something because of what it can do for you. You love because of what you can do for somebody else. And so you get Paul saying, imitate God. Live in love as Christ also loved us and did what? And gave himself for us. Now our understanding of love is, you know, this way. But the biblical understanding and the picture that is getting developed is of a love that is other-oriented and cares more about somebody else than it does itself, and it can lose itself in another and for another. And John tells us that is what is the very inner heart of God is. And that's the way the three persons of the Blessed Trinity relate to each other. And he says God has invited us to enter into that fellowship. Now, what are you and I going to do in a fellowship that isn't living this way, but's living that way? It's absolutely alien to who we are. You know, uh, it's interesting that in Genesis there's no law. You don't have the Ten Commandments. So there's not a case except in the garden where a person really breaks a law as a law that I can find. In the garden, you'll remember God said, now don't eat the fruit of this tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to know evil. And if you eat of that, you'll know evil. And you remember they said, well, it's good to look at. It's good to the taste. And they said, it'll make us wise. And the serpent said, it'll make you like God. And then you'll be equal to him. And so they reached why? for self-interest. Now, Luther explained that this way. Luther says the best definition, the Latin expression is core incurvitus ad se. Core is the word for heart, coronary. Incurvitus, simply curved in. Ad se, on oneself. And that what happened in Adam and Eve's sin was they curved their affection, their intentions, their interest in on themselves and turned it away from God. And so they began to live for themselves. And that's the essence of sin. And do you know how deeply sinful we are? We are so sinful that the only way God can get to us is appeal to our sinfulness. Why did you become a Christian? Probabilities are because you needed something <laughs> and didn't know where else to get it. I think it was from F.B. Meyer... <laughs> A story about, he, I think there were 12 significant preachers connected maybe with the Keswick movement in England that were together. And somebody said, let's just go around and find why each one of us became a Christian. Eleven of the 12 said, because they didn't want to go to hell. <laughs> That's noble, isn't it? But before you laugh at that, let me ask you why you turned to Christ. You see, the only way Christ can get to us is appeal to our self-interest. And so we give him a chance. And when we give him a chance and he comes in, then begin, if we walk with him, a transformation. And you know what I'm convinced? If you will read the lives of many of the great saints, you will find that they had to walk with Christ a while before they realized how totally they were curved in on themselves. Moody was a very effective preacher you, and worker in Chicago. 
And there were two little ladies who came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, we're praying for you. And they did it so often, he finally said, don't pray for me, pray for the sinners, that they'll get saved. No, they said, we're praying for you. And they kept pursuing him enough that Moody turned and said, well, if you're going to pray for me, would you pray with me? And he said, I began praying every Friday with these two ladies. And he said, you know what I found? I thought all along I was doing everything I did for Christ, but I was doing a whale of a lot of it for Dwight L. Moody and for his reputation. I wanted to be known as a great Christian worker. And he said, those ladies held my feet to the fire until I began to say, Lord, can you deliver me from that self-interest? And the Chicago fire came and wiped him out. <laughs> and in the aftermath of that, he came to an experience where he said, Christ, I want you to be supreme in my life. I want you to deliver me from this core in curve, this heart curved in on itself. You see, that's what Paul means by flesh in the New Testament. The word there, sarx, which is a flesh, is simply a life oriented around itself. And he says, that's not the way God is, and if you're going to live with God, you've got to be turned inside out. And that's why Christ came, and that's what he wants to do with me. Now, why does he do it? So we'll be noble. <laughs> so we'll be righteous. Pat ourselves on the back and say how noble we are? No. Do you know you're never free until you're free from yourself? If a man saves his life, he'll lose it, Jesus said. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you will find it. And our freedom is to be freed from that graspiness that wants it my way and wants my finger in the pot. And so we come to the place where through his infinite grace, we can be set free from that self-interest. And when we are, we find out that's what we were made to be. That's exactly what we wanted all along and never knew it. I knew a violinist, a wonderful violinist, who told me about how God dealt with her and said, do you love me more than your violin? She said, that's all I've got. That's my life. He said, I know. She said, I've been a Christian for years. And she said, God said, I want to be your life. She said to me, Dennis, do you know what I had those four fingers insured for? She said, I had those four fingers insured for a fortune because I knew if I lost those four fingers, I had lost my life. And God said to her, I want to be your life. She got desperate enough. She told me, she said, I said, well, okay, Lord, I'll destroy my violin. I said, well, I notice you're still playing it. She said, when I said to God, I'll destroy it, he said, I don't want your violin. I just want you, and now I've got you. And I said, well, what about, she said, for the first time in my life, I was free. You see, if God's very nature is other-oriented, we're to be in his image and be like him. And when we do, we find what a privilege and what a joy and what a freedom it is. Now, you notice how these stories all build background. It isn't spelled out here, but we get illustrations. And you come to the New Testament, and it is given clearly. And we get some of the theology of it. But Christ wants to be Lord in my life, not so he can run me, 
but so he can free me to be what he intended me to be. Now, that's the reason I love this Judah story. Little wonder that he's the one who became the father of the tribe that produced David, the Davidic line, and the father of Christ. So that what you have in this passage is laying the groundwork for Christ to come. And when Christ comes, we can get a vision of God that we would not have apart from these stories. Now, so oftentimes, it, we tend to think of the attributes of God. But you know, this is not an attribute of God. You know the difference between the God of Scripture and the God of Judaism and the God of Islam? The God of Judaism loves. Allah loves. But do you know what John says about our God? Love is not something He does, it's what He is. It is a description of His being. It is a description of the odd intra, the inner life of God Himself. And says, God says, I want you to enter into that with me. Now, that is what Christ died to do. Save me from hell? Of course. Thank God for that. Forgive my sins? Yes. But deliver me from that contaminating, defiling touch of my hand on my life to where I can be here. And that's freedom. Now, isn't it wonderful the way you get these stories in the Old Testament that give you a foreshadowing of what is to come? And so you get this man, Judah. Now, what happens when a person gets to that place? Do you know this is the thing that broke Joseph? Look at uh, the next passage in 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I wish I were a dramatist enough to do some kind of limited justice to this. But notice, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Can you imagine what happened to them? Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. You see, Joseph has seen the brother that wanted to sell him into slavery, now offering himself to enter into slavery to save Joseph's own brother and to save his father. The turnaround has come. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had come, so he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one who sold, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. See then, so then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, what's happened? He's seen his brother transformed, and his brother is not living this way anymore. His brother is passionately concerned about his father and Joseph's brother, and Joseph is broken. 
Do you know the greatest witness that you and I can give to the world? And the one that the world does not know what to do with when it sees it? Is for us to come to the place where the world around us says, these Christians are strange people. They're not like other people. They don't live for themselves. They don't define love as you love something because of what it can do for you. They define love as a concern to do something for somebody else. And you love the person because of what you can do for the other person. They're turned inside out. And that's exactly right. And that's what the grace of God, that's what Christ died on the cross to do for us, to turn us inside out like that so we can live for something beyond ourselves. Now, that's not exactly what evangelicalism today is known for in America. But I think that's not a judgment on Scripture. I think it's a judgment on us that we've reduced the power of the blood of Christ to where it's a means of me taking care of me and getting my soul saved and getting the benefits of grace instead of the blood of Christ having the power to turn me around so that a pagan world around me will see something of the very nature of God Himself in a person like me. Now, we're not talking about your ability and mine because there's none in us. We're not talking about righteousness on our part. We're talking about the power of the Spirit of God. Let me take you back to that passage in Hebrews. Jesus, through the power of the eternal Spirit, offered Himself a blameless sacrifice to God. How did Jesus offer Himself a blameless sacrifice to God so that we glory in the cross? He did it through the power of the Spirit. It's interesting that in our day, we've been very interested in all the other things that the Spirit can do. But if we want to touch a world, we've got to let the Spirit come to us and set us free to where we can be a blameless sacrifice to God. Now, before I close, it's interesting uh, how John picks that up. I remember when I was wrestling with uh, the question, wonder why they rejected Jesus. Jerusalem rejected him. The temple rejected him. What made a Jew a Jew was he was waiting for him. And you'll remember the temple, those were the authorities, the experts on the coming of the Messiah. And he comes and they missed him. Now, why did they miss him? Because he didn't act the way they expected him to act. You see, we project God in our own image instead of letting God make us in his image. And there are four things in the Gospel of John that impress me. I'm going to give them all, but there are two that I particularly want to get to. One of them is he came rejectable. And you see, they were looking for a power figure, and he came knocking. But Jesus came knocking. The power is on the other side of the door. He came rejectably. They didn't know what to do with a God, with a Messiah like that. You remember he came on a donkey not a horse. Do you know how many years I read Zechariah 9.9 9 and skipped Zechariah 9.10? 9, 
9.9 says, Behold, your king comes meekly, riding upon a donkey and upon its foal. Verse 10 says, And he will take away the horse and the chariot from his city. Because you see, worldly kings come on horses, not donkeys. Now I'm a Kentuckian. And you know, we know about horses. When I was wrestling with this, uh, a lot of oil money coming in in those days to Lexington. I remember in 1986 they sold a four-legged yearling, never run a, run a step in a race. They sold one for $8.4 million. 1987 they sold one for 10.2, and in 1988 they sold one for $12.5 million. And I asked what the going rate on donkeys was in Lexington. I found you could get one for 40 to $65, and I said there's theology in that. You see, he didn't come the way the world expected him to come. But the two that are most significant to me is, you know, the mark of religion is, one of the greatest symbols is kneeling. You kneel before the deity. And what do you get in the night before the cross? You get the second person of the Blessed Trinity kneeling before his disciples. In all the religions of the world, the worshiper kneels before the worship. But in the gospel of Christ, the worship kneels before the worshiper. See, it's turning things inside out. But the big thing is, sacrifice is a part of all religion. And so, you get Good Friday. And the cross is an altar. But always, the worshiper sacrifices something precious to the worship. But on Good Friday, the worship sacrifice is best for the worshiper turned upside down. And you know, I'm fascinated with the people who wear crosses. The world recognizes something here. They don't know what to do with it. But what you have is the beginning of a picture of what God is like. How far will God go? You go as far as to give himself. You know, uh, we had a great preacher once in this country who had a sermon on Abraham offering Isaac. And he takes you up to that point where Abraham raised the knife and was ready to put it in to his son. And the angel of the Lord said, Stop, don't touch the lad. And then the preacher hesitated. And he said, You know, I thought I heard a conversation between the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity. And the eternal son was saying, Father, this is not the last time we'll come to this sacred spot, is it? God said, no. The father said, it'll be 2,000 years before we come back here. And the son said, when we come back the next time, it's not going to be one of them on that altar, is it? And the eternal father said, no, son, it won't be one of them. It'll be one of us. And the son said, yes. And Father, it'll be me, won't it? And the Eternal Father said, Yes, Son, it'll be you. Because you see, we never ask 
them to do anything even in symbol that we haven't done in reality. And so when Jesus says, follow me, what is he asking? For me to do what he did. And he says, if you do, you will know fullness, fullness of life. You will know the very fullness of the fullness of the life of God flooding through you when you're free from you and you're all His. Amazing story, isn't it? And that's the power of the blood of Christ and that's the power of His Spirit. Will you let me pray with you for a moment before we close? Now, Father, you brought us together to spend these hours together with your word. We thank you for these images, these pictures that are given that really are promises of a richer development in the rest of the, the scripture and in the fuller revelation of your word. We thank you for whatever it was that you did in Judah that turned him inside out and that caused Joseph to see the change that was there and he could trust himself to his brothers. Lord, bring us to the place where others can trust themselves to us because we don't live for ourselves, but we live for you and in living for you, we live for those beyond us and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.